to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullett. And I'd like to uh, apologize if my voice sounds funny or if it gives out every so often. I am going to get over a cold, so I apologize up front for that. Uh, As always, if there are topics you'd like us or have specific guests on the show, please feel free to send an email at info at stone-road.com. And you can also reach me through the voiceamerica.com website of which my next guest did. And I'd like to introduce uh, Perrin Goodyear, who is a representative of the Salvation Army here in Canada. Perrin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started uh, and jump right into our our chat today about the Salvation Army. First of all, can you give us a a bit of a a background on yourself, you know, what, what you've been doing and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Um, so I actually grew up um, as a part of the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army started uh, way back in 1865, um, and it, uh, it started as a Christian church, um, but has been called the Church with the Social Conscience. Um, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, um, William Booth, um, believed that you, you really couldn't talk to somebody about religious things, about God or other things, um, if you know, they were hungry or if they didn't have a roof over their head. So you had to meet those basic needs first um, before you could, you could talk to them about anything spiritual. Um, so out of that grew kind of our, our social service work. Salvation um, Army is active in 128 countries around the world. So um, my parents are actually retired Salvation Army um, officers, which are our clergy. Um, so I kind of grew up um, uh, really a part of the organization, um, and uh, it was about 14 years ago that I started working for the Salvation Army, um, where I live in London, Ontario, um, starting in a number of different roles, and then uh, kind of, I would almost say, fell into emergency response work. Um, and from there, I, w- I was the local coordinator. Um, then I became the, uh, the director of our emergency disaster services for uh, what's called the Ontario Great Lakes Division, uh, which is southwestern and northern Ontario. Um, and now for the last uh, just over a year, um, I've uh, taken on the national portfolio um, of emergency disaster services for our Canada and Bermuda territory. Um, so now my responsibility is to help coordinate those responses when we have a large scale response um, in particular and anything um, you know, from province to province or what we call our division to division, um, uh, you know, getting those resources in, um, interacting with uh, other Salvation Army units um, across the world, in particular in the United States, uh, to bring in additional support as it's required. You you mentioned something um, that caught my attention there. You said you fell into it, like the emergency response. I'm always interested in hearing how people got into, you know, emergency response, incident management, business continuity, that whole realm. How did you fall into it? As you well, say, well, it's interesting. Um, so my background is in uh, actually public relations and uh, and communication. 
Um, and I was uh, doing community relations for one of our uh, our local facilities, um, and they had a, a mandate where their, part of their responsibility was local emergencies. Um, and uh, it, it turned out that the um, we, we got a call um, from a police department to assist uh, with a local search and rescue operation uh, to provide some support to those who were uh, participating. And the person who normally oversaw that was actually off sick. And so it, the call came to me because I was community relations. Um, and so, you know, went from there and uh, put a team together and responded. Um, and then because of the success of that, was then asked to take on that additional responsibility locally. Um, and again, then from there, um, you know, within a couple of years, was asked to take on uh, sort of the larger portfolio of southwestern and northern Ontario. And then, you know, last year, as I mentioned, um, asked to take on the national portfolio. So you stepped in to, to help somebody out and look what happened, eh? <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, since then, obviously, I have uh, done significant training, um, have uh, significant experience over the years, um, but that's where I kind of say I, I it was kind of one of those fill-in things, um, and, uh, you know, I've often said to people, if, uh, you know, early in my career you had told me this is what I'd be doing, I would have probably told you to get your head checked, because um, <laughs> it wasn't what I anticipated I would, I would be doing, um, but, uh, you know, once I got into it and uh, and started to learn more and become more comfortable, um, I really do love what I do. That's good. That's good to hear, especially with what uh, the Salvation Army does, which we'll get to, uh, you know, uh, shortly. Um, during our conversations or emails back and forth, you made a very interesting point as to how the Salvation Army got started here in Canada. Now, for the listeners out there, we're recording on December 5th, uh, 2017. Now, I know that there's a particular date coming up that is, uh, I, I don't want to say special, but I guess it would be um, a key milestone date for the Salvation Army here in Canada, correct? That's correct, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Salvation Army started itself in Canada back in 1882, um, like I say, a, a, as a church, but then providing social services and other things. And, and really um, where the, the key date uh, from my perspective is, uh, was back on December 6th, 1917, of course, the Halifax explosion, um, which really devastated the city of Halifax. And that was the first time that the Salvation Army responded to a disaster in Canada. Um, you know, we had uh, been involved in supporting uh, the troops uh, during the First World War, what were known as the, became affectionately known as the Donut Girls um, during World War I. Um, but Halifax was really the first time we responded to a disaster. Um, and again, it was kind of that ad hoc um, Salvation Army personnel uh, from different parts of Canada. I mean, it started as, that, as it always does with that local response. Um, you know, there is uh, uh, one of there were those who uh, there was a story of one Salvation Army um, ensign, um, uh, Cramwell, who uh, was injured, found out that he had his uh, wife actually died um, during the explosion. And once he realized she was gone, he actually went out and started to help others. Um, so, you know, it was kind of that uh, thing that started locally, as it does always, um, and then expanded beyond there, where personnel from Ontario and other parts of the Maritimes and Newfoundland and Quebec were then sent to Halifax 
to basically, in those days, help in whatever way they could, you know, handing out cups of cold water, um, uh, providing support. Um, one of our Salvation Army personnel actually ended up in an operating room, uh, assisting um, in an operating room. So it was just kind of helping out wherever they could um, and uh, certainly helping out in, with the long-term uh, recovery the uh, the chairman of the disaster relief committee actually wrote to our national publication in the day um, and said we don't know how we would have gotten along without them. Um, referring to the work that the Salvation Army did, um, you know, again, no formalized plans uh, that we weren't a disaster response organization. It wasn't even on our radar, um, but there were people who needed help, and so the Salvation Army mobilized to be able to do that. And out of that has grown what is now our emergency disaster services, um, which is much more formalized now. You know, we're part of uh, municipal plans uh, from coast to coast. Um, we're part of uh, public safety's um, or on their website listed as a key key partner. Um, and now it, we seem to respond to things, uh, everything from you know single house fires to those major catastrophic events. Uh, but it all started 100 years ago tomorrow um, in response to the Halifax explosion. Can you take a moment and just kind of describe what the Halifax explosion is? It, considering we have listeners from all around the globe, there might be quite a few people who aren't quite sure what that is, if you're able to, yeah, of course. Uh, Absolutely, for sure. So on the morning of December 6, 1917, um, Halifax Harbor um, in Nova Scotia was bustling with activity. Um, of course, it was the height of the First World War, the Great War, as it was called. Um, and Halifax was a major base for the Allied naval operations in the Atlantic. Um, it was an assembly and departure point for transatlantic convoys carrying supplies and soldiers uh, to the war effort. So uh, just before 9 o'clock, um, a tragic navigation error resulted in the collision uh, between the Mont Blanc, which was a, fresh, uh, a French munitions ship, and it was loaded with uh, over 2,300 tons of acid, uh, 225 tons of TNT, um, and a deck load of benzene. Um, and then uh, it uh, collided with Emo, which was a Belgian relief ship. It was the greatest pre-atomic explosion the world had known uh, up to that date, um, and uh, the outward blast of air and subsequent tsunami leveled everything uh, within one and a half kilometer radius. So that's homes, offices, shops, churches, warehouses were either obliterated by the blast or destroyed by the fire that started. Um, there was uh, about 2,000 people um, died either instantly or later because of their injuries. Um, more than 9,000 suffered um, injuries. Um, many of them who were blinded by uh, flying glass. And uh, actually, um, besides our emergency disaster services, that was actually the start of the CNIB as well, um, you know, due to all of the eye injuries really? that were there. Um, yeah, and, and more oh, than 20,000 wow. people were left homeless. Um, so it was a, a devastating event. Um, it is marked um, every year in Halifax um, because of the devastation. Uh, like I say, the, the largest man-made explosion um, that the world had known to that date um, that really just wiped out um, much of Halifax because of the munitions on the ship. And of course, it was because it was during the war, there weren't um, the, the warning flags like you would have in non-war times, letting people know. So people um, were actually out watching this fire burn, um, realizing that there had been a collision and that this uh, ship was on fire, but not knowing that it was um, laden with all of these uh, munitions and uh, was about to explode. Wow. 
I've seen I've seen pictures of it, and it really was just uh, amazing. You know, I think if um, the if I understand correctly, it was Canada's largest disaster in history, even to yeah. up to now. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I've seen uh, it, over the last uh, year or so, leading up to the anniversary, um, there's been a lot of studies done. Um, I saw a presentation recently where they were talking about, you know, if that happened today, what would be the outcome um, if something like if that same um, set of circumstances happened today in, in Halifax, and just the devastation that would be caused um, be, because of it. So it was, it was, you know, it was kind of the, one of those. Um, fine post events and uh you know much of the, the structures in Halifax were changed because of it um you know we talk a lot now about building back better and indeed Halifax did try and build back better um you know to make um buildings that would then withstand uh this kind of devastation um and, and you know again out of that grew organizations and you know although the Salvation Army didn't start because of it uh, our emergency disaster services component started because of the Halifax explosion, um, you know, and, uh, you know, again, it was just one of those, um, we, we can be of some assistance, um, we'll do what we can to, to, uh, to help. Um, and then, of course, it became more and more formalized over the years. So I just wanted to uh, clarify something. You you said the CNIB for our international listeners. If I, I hope I remember the acronym correctly, Canadian uh, National Institute for the Blind. That's correct. Yeah, the Canadian National yes. Institute for the Blind. So it was again yeah. one of the organizations that uh, that started, um, uh, you know, out of the Halifax explosion because of so many eye injuries, because of flying debris and flying glass. Um, that it, it really got its start there at the Halifax explosion as well. So it's, it is, again, one of those things that, you know, sometimes out of that great tragedy comes um, some of those positive things because we see, um, you know, the best in humanity um, sometimes after these events. Um, you know, as, uh, as Mr. Rogers always said, you always look for the helpers. That's right. So after that disaster, you said things got formalized. How did it get formalized? Like how, how did you really get... You had all these people that were helping out, and so how did uh, the Salvation Army actually materialize as a formal entity in Canada? Well, you know, it was, uh, you know, again, out of that, um, you know, as things happened, the Salvation Army would continue to respond to disasters. Um, you know, again, uh, sometimes the, these major events are kind of those those signposts along the way. Um, September the 11th was another one of those uh, in 2001. Um, I, I'm sure all the listeners would be familiar with that, the, uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York. Um, and again, the Salvation Army mobilized what would be its largest disaster um, response um, uh, ever, where, again, personnel from Canada and stuff went um, to New York to assist with uh, relief efforts um, months and months um, after uh, the, the initial disaster. Um, but, you know, again, out of that, some of the formalizing in that, you know, then realizing, well, we needed better training for our personnel. Um, so we now have a developed a national disaster training program, um, which is a North American program, um, so that uh, all of our folks all across North America receive the same kind of training um, so that we can deploy people um, south of the border and they can deploy people north of the border, um, know that they have a certain uh, skill set, but it, it became more formalized in that now, you know, giving some people some of those skills that they need. And, you know, part of that is um, teaching about um, things that uh, 
how we respond, teaching about the incident command system, which of course we use, um, like many organizations within Canada and the United States, to uh, to organize command and control of disaster response. Uh, but we even teach things like self-care um, and how to look after yourself um, when you're on a disaster site, and you know some of those steps so that we have people. Um, you know, it, it was a lesson that we learned um, after 9/11 when we had personnel who, quite frankly, didn't come back the same. Um, because it was such a traumatic experience for them. And, and so being able to better prepare our folks um, for that type of response. I'm going, we have one minute left. Um, and I think this is a perfect time to take a break because you touched on a couple of things I'd really like to uh, talk about in the next segment, the self-care, like some tips and things like that that people can do themselves when they're in a disaster. And I'd really like to talk about the the incident command structure that you have because I know you've, uh, reading your biography, you've got quite a bit of um, experience with uh, being in charge of, uh, you know, the incident commander of disaster. So I'd really like to touch base on those in our next segment. I think I think Absolutely. you can offer a, a lot of uh, fantastic insights there to our listeners. For sure. So, the, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Preparing for the Unexpected. And we're talking with Perrin Goodyear from the Salvation Army. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's info at stone-road.com. 
Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Today we're talking with Perrin Goodyear from the Salvation Army. And Perrin, just before we went away on break, you mentioned two really great things that I'd like to talk about. The first one is how the Salvation Army uh, teaches people you know, to help themselves, or, or uh, I think the words used was self-care uh, during a disaster. Can you kind of give us some tips on that and touch, uh, touch on what it is that you, what information you provide people? Absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it, again, is a really key component for us, um, and uh, in particular because we find that those who uh, want to volunteer with the Salvation Army's Emergency Disaster Services are often those who, you know, want to give of themselves. They really want to give. And so, you know, some of the challenge sometimes is that they want to give too much and they think, well, they're being selfish if they're looking after themselves. And, uh, you know, I'm only deployed for two weeks, so I can just, you know, lay it all out and not look after myself because I'll look after myself when I get home. Um, and so, you know, we try and teach them uh, some of those things. Um, we are uh, adopters of the critical inc- of critical incident stress management uh, through the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. Um, and in fact, some of the courses that ICISS has uh, has developed um, have actually been written by uh, Salvation Army Emergency Disaster Services personnel, including Dr. Kevin Ellers, um, who has written a number of their their curriculum courses. Um, and so, you know, it's teaching them that everybody that's affected. Uh, by disasters, um, it, you know, it is affected by it. And that's, you know, that's, that's a normal thing. And, you know, as we say in critical incident stress management, it's kind of sadness, grief, anger, some of those um, symptoms are normal reactions by a normal person to what is an abnormal event. Uh, so first of all, I think it's that normalizing it. You know, it, it's, it's normal. Um, we teach them about some of the signs and symptoms of um, extreme stress. So, you know, whether that's excessively complaining, um, inappropriately venting their frustrations, um, doing anything in excess, you know, drinking, smoking, eating, any of those things in excess. Um, And then we go through um, some self-care strategies, you know, um, talking to them about, you know, when they're in normal stressful situations, you know, what are some tips, you know, and we, we do it more as a group discussion. So how can you look after yourself physically? You know, well, it might, it's, you know, exercising, getting lots of sleep. Emotionally, how can you look after yourself? Um, spiritually, all of those um, components. And, um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's getting them to think about what do you normally do when you're stressed, right? And what of those things can you take to a disaster site? So, you know, some examples could be, you know, if, if you listen to music, and that's how you really unwind and de-stress. Then we say, make sure you take your favorite music with you to the disaster site. If it's that you need to write things out, you, you like to journal or, you know, write things down, make sure you've got notepads and papers with you. So it's, it's really getting them to think beforehand what you normally do to de-stress, do that. And then encouraging them to take those, that time um, when they're at a disaster site, make sure they're taking that time each day to look after themselves and that it's, it's really not being selfish, um, but, you know, it's making them understand that taking the best care of ourselves and our coworkers ultimately is going to have a positive impact on how survivors cope um, with stress and recover from the effects of a disaster. So it, it really is so important. And so we've also implemented into that that all of our personnel are uh, debriefed. Um, but prior to leaving an emergency site, um, and then uh, somebody within their own region 
uh, we'll again follow up with them in two to three weeks just to make sure that they're still doing okay. Um, so it's it's sometimes that uh, that training piece of just letting them know, here's some things you need to do and make sure that whatever you're doing, you're looking after yourself when you go to a disaster site. Well, I guess it's like that, uh, that saying, you know, you can't help others if, you, if you're unable to help yourself. Absolutely. You know, and that is, uh, you know, it goes to um, some of the other training that we provide as far as, you know, making sure you're looking after these, your home, make sure you're, you're looking after all of these other things or you're not going to be any good to anybody else. And, and really the self-care is that big piece of it is saying, you know, think about what those things are. Um, what is it that you can do to look at that you normally do to look after yourself or cope with stress? Make sure you're bringing some of those strategies along with you, the ones that you can bring them with you to the disaster site and make sure you're still looking after yourself. That's not being selfish. It ultimately will mean that you're going to be, a, you're going to better be able to, uh, to help those that you're there to serve. Well, it, it's interesting. It reminds me of what I got told years ago um, on an airplane when we had some turbulence and the person sitting beside me said, just watch how, how the, um, the stewards and uh, react, you know, if they're calm, don't worry about it you know, because they're trained. So I guess that would be, yep. you know, if you're trying to help someone and you're stressed out and, you know, not acting appropriately, well, that's going to carry over to other people and they're going to think that things are worse, right? You know, Absolutely. you're not going to be helping them. So, you know, exactly, you know, and, uh, that's the thing. And when we go into some of these significant events, um, it can absolutely be stressful. And, and that's where we want people looking after themselves. Um, and so that in the long term, they don't have repercussions from going in and helping other people. Um, and so really, a lot of that comes down to that training and, you know, making people aware of, of here's things. And also being aware, because uh, sometimes you can't see it in yourself, but it's also being aware for those that you're working with. Are you seeing signs and symptoms that the other person there is really getting stressed? out, you need to make sure that you're telling someone that um, because then we need to make sure that we're looking after those people because, you know, um, if we um, as, as leadership see somebody that really is, is having a difficult time, we may need to pull them out of that task so that uh, we're not doing long-term damage. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's a really interesting, you know, because I've always wondered how people got in that role and, you know, what kind of training, what, what did they go through before they showed up on these sites? So that's really good information. The other piece that I'd like to uh, talk about, you mentioned, uh, was the ICT, the Incident Command uh, Team Structure. Can you tell us about that? What is that and how, how that's managed? Absolutely. So um, Incident Command um, throughout North America, so it's a, it's a standardized on-scene all-hazards management system, if you will. Um, you know, I, I would love to tell you that the Salvation Army invented it, but that, uh, that's, <laughs> that's not correct. It, it was actually developed for fire service. Um, and, and really, one of the, the reasons for it is, um, you know, to make sure we're all talking the same language. And it, it's based on the fact that um, in, in every incident, regardless of the size, there are certain functions um, that really need to be for, uh, uh, that need to be done regardless of, of the incident. Um, and so, uh, you know, the Salvation Army has a, a formally adopted the incident command system structure. Um, it's how we manage our, our responses. Um, it's how we organize ourselves. Um, so that we make sure that those key functions are done, but it also ensures that we're talking the same language. Um, we as an organization, as, as a lot of organizations do, have acronyms and terminology that we use internally that 
if, if we talk to somebody outside of our organization about it, um, they would have no idea what we were talking about. So by using the same system that uh, uh, police and fire and paramedics and uh, emergency managers and everybody else use, it allows us to make sure we're all talking that common language. Um, and so, it, you know, if it comes uh, in place when an emergency happens. Um, so the, the functions uh, that are used are the incident commander, who is overall the field manager for the disaster response. Um, we have a public information or emergency information officer who's responsible um, for internal and external communications. Um, the liaison does, does that include responsible? Sorry, just that you mentioned the internal and external. Does that include social media? That would absolutely include social media. So that would include, you know, social media, media relations. They may or may not be the spokesperson. Um, if they're not, then they would be briefing the designated spokesperson, writing news releases, um, helping to tell our story, okay, both to internal and external. Um, we have our liaison who would be our point of contact with um, other organizations like um, St. John Ambulance and the Canadian Red Cross and other organizations that we work with, um, as well as government, or if we're asked to provide a representative to the um, Emergency Operations Center, that would be our liaison that would go there. Um, our safety officer is responsible for um, the safety and security uh, of our personnel. Um, but they're also responsible, you know, to make sure that the food that we're serving is being prepared properly and, uh, you know, we're following um, health uh, guidelines, all of those things. Um, then we have our, our general staff, the operations section chief. So really anything that um, touches a survivor, I guess, if you will, is part of our operations. It's really um, what we do. Yeah, those are the doers. Uh, logistics are the getters. They're the people who get the things that operations need in order to do. Um, we have our finance and admin, um, which uh, tracks people, money, statistics, all of those kinds of things. And then we would have planning. And planning um, plans really what you're doing tomorrow. So they're looking at the long term and, and uh, immediately looking at demobilization and when do we turn things back over to the locals. So that's in a standard incident command system. Now, the one um, I guess, addition that we as the Salvation Army um, have really added to that um, because of the nature of who we are and what we do is we also have an emotional and spiritual care officer. Um, and so emotional and spiritual care under that would fall things like critical incident stress management, um, looking after our personnel, looking after the, the care and well-being of those, um, you know, who have been impacted and, and first responders. And although we say emotional and spiritual care, and yes, we started, we're a Christian organization. Um, we don't hide that. It, you know, uh, I don't apologize for it. It's part of our DNA. Um, but uh, our emotional and spiritual care um, is really not a faith-based thing in that if somebody came to us and said, you know, I'm Jewish and I'd like to talk to a rabbi, um, our folks would make that connection for them. Um, but oftentimes we find that people turn to their faith um, in times of disaster. So it really is such an important part of what we do that we've added that ninth function to our incident command structure. So can you give us an example of where that structure came into play? You know, either something recent or, or anywhere in the globe or, you know, Absolutely. where you actually so, implemented that? Um, you know, the, the Fort McMurray fires would be something that I think most listeners would probably be familiar with, uh, regardless of where they're from, Fort McMurray, Alberta, um, last year, um, severe 
uh, forest fires, which caused the evacuation of the entire city of Fort McMurray. Um, so it was really a critical component. Um, much of what we did um, fell into that emotional and spiritual care piece. And it was everything from, you know, um, having a more formalized critical incident stress management debrief with those who were evacuated, who described to us, um, you know, evacuating from Fort McMurray with fire on each side of the highway. And, and I remember talking to one person who said it was literally driving through hell um, because there was fire on each side of the highway, you know, and thinking that they had gone the wrong way. So helping them cope with that stress. Um, to as we were providing food services right in Fort McMurray um, to the firefighters who were fighting the beast, um, you know, it was uh, sometimes as simple as a smile. So it was having trained people there who, uh, you know, could help them, um, you know, whether it was a, a simple debrief, whether it was a smile. Um, as people were reentering Fort McMurray, um, we were a part of all seven welcome stations. Um, you know, and we heard those stories of people who would say, uh, some of our personnel would say, you know, they were there, they'd be talking to the people, say, you know, we're here if you want to talk. And they'd say, nope, nope, I'm fine. I just want to get stuff done. And then we would help them carry a case of water to their car. And by doing that, they would all of a sudden start to open up and start to share their story and the journey that they had been on and where they were at. And so we were able to help them cope with the stress of that situation uh, because of that. So it's really I guess, highly embedded in everything that we do, um, whether it's, you know, providing a bottle of water, uh, a meal, uh, or more formalized, it really is a key component of everything that we do. Um, many of the firefighters uh, during the Fort McMurray fire, um, I remember a day that I was there, one of them came up and said, yesterday I came for a sandwich, and today I came for a smile. That's nice to hear. I, cons considering, I, I, I remember seeing some of those pictures of people, you know, driving through hell as, as uh, you you termed it, and uh, you know, hearing that line that com coming for a smile, that's good to hear. You know, that's a testament to what you know yourself and other organizations and, and all the the volunteers out there. You know, that's a testament to what you guys do. You know, so that's really good to hear. Yeah, and because you know, you know, it really is more about it, it's not just about those practical things as important as they are. Um, sometimes it's just knowing that there's people there journeying with them, right? I've been at uh, disaster responses where somebody says, how long are you guys going to keep doing this? And we say, well, as long as you're here, we're going to be here, right? So knowing that you're not in it alone. And we heard that a lot, um, again, through uh, in Fort McMurray from people who they felt that support from all across Canada and even all across the world where they knew, you know, although it was this community that was evacuated, you know what, well, we're not in this alone. There's people here from all over um, that are here to help and are providing support. And it means we're going to get through this because, you know, we're going to get through it together. And so many times we've heard people say, say to us as an organization that uh, it, it wasn't just about providing them with food and, and drinks and somebody to talk to or listening ear, um, but that the Salvation Army gave them hope. Hope that, you know, in, in their darkest hour, things were going to get better um, because we're there. And uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, during 9-11, um, as planes were being diverted all over the world, um, back in my home province of Newfoundland, Gander, Newfoundland, you may have heard, mm -hmm. um, basically doubled their population um, yes. from all the planes that were landed there. Um, there wasn't a spot. And there's a story told that um, on one of the planes, as people were, you know, they were sitting there, they were stuck in the plane sometimes for, for hours and hours waiting to, to deplane. And one of them looked out and saw a Salvation Army canteen truck, one of our food trucks out on the tarmac. And they said to the other passengers, we're going to be okay. The Salvation Army's here. 
And so that really speaks, um, you know, to the the important work um, that our organization and others do um, on the ground when things happen, that it really gives people that hope and that sense of security. Um, uh, one of the firefighters in Fort McMurray said it really gave them a sense of home when they didn't necessarily have a home. Well, that that kind of you, you mentioned something that kind of resonated here. How do you how long do you know you you should stay? You know, I know you touched on a few things, but how do you make that decision to say we're not needed anymore? Because that that's got to be kind of tough too, because you're going to see, you know, these these firemen and these residents and other volunteers coming back and forth all the time. You know, you're you're learning about them, they're learning about you, and then you have to decide, okay, we're not needed anymore. How do you make that decision? Well, you know, it's one of the strengths uh, of our organization, actually, is that the Salvation Army, you know, I mentioned we're in 128 countries. Well, here in, in Canada, uh, we're in 400 communities across Canada as it is. So, you know, it used to be said that organizations like the Salvation Army, you know, we were one of the first there and we're one of the last to leave when something bad happens. And we kind of look at that and say, well, that's not exactly true because we were in the community like Fort McMurray. We were there. Um, many years before the fire took place, we were a part of the community. We have a shelter there. It's one of our largest operations in Canada, is actually in Fort McMurray. So once again, our local team started initially. Okay, They provided that initial support um, from their truck and pro- uh, providing support to the firefighters until they themselves were told they had to evacuate the community um, because they thought um, even the emergency operations center was going to burn to the ground. So we were told we had to evacuate. Um, within what was probably ours, we were contacted and said, how quickly can you get a team back in here? So that's when additional teams went in um, from other places um, and other parts of the country to support the locals, um, add to their capacity. Um, And then in the long term, things were transitioned back to the local team. So we are, in fact, still providing support in places like Fort McMurray um, on a long-term recovery basis. Uh, So it may be uh, that you know, we start to ramp down that response phase, but we're certainly there mm. for the long term. Um, and it, it's one of the advantages in that we were already in the community before. We knew we were going to be there a long time afterwards. Um, and in some cases, it may be a di- hiring additional staff to support the locals um, for a period of time or some of those things, um, knowing that the additional needs are going to be there. Um, but uh, be- because we're going to continue to be there. So um, it really isn't about pulling out as much as it is, you know, we start to go with that disaster and we look at the signs for, okay, well, you know, now the fire's out. So now we may not need to do as much feeding of firefighters and things, uh, but we were asked to be a part of that, the, the seven welcome centers. So help with the transition as people are going back in. And then we start, you know, talking to partners and figuring out what are going to be the long-term needs. What can we do? Talking to people to find out what their needs are so that as we start to look at that long-term recovery, um, see what it is, um, what the needs are. And we base our response always on and our long-term recovery on, you know, what assistance is provided by other organizations? Where are there gaps? Are there, are there places where uh, people's needs are not being met that maybe we can step in and fill in those gaps? Oh, okay. So it's not just a, you know, a, a quick decision, okay, we're not needed, go, you know, it's, you, you, you have a long-term plan and goal and objective already in place to ease, you know, ease that transition period. Absolutely. And so really part of our incident command structure 
Um, you know, again, for Fort McMurray, uh, was our planning section early on was looking at reentry before there was any talk, before the fire was, you know, under control and there was any talk of when people would be going back home. Um, we were working with our local folks from Fort McMurray to come up with a plan for, you know, kind of those what ifs and, you know, what, what's our long-term um, plan going to be uh, looking at that reentry and then well, what kinds of supports do we think are going to be needed um, and understanding that there were homes we knew there were neighborhoods that were destroyed so part of that plan was to start gathering donations um, on some of those needed items that we knew people were going to need um, everything from clothing and diapers and formula and toiletries and things that we were starting to to gather and and sort and get ready um, so that we could then send them to Fort McMurray as soon as we were able to, to get them in. So as soon as people started going back home, we'd have those items available for them in the community where they could get them. Oh, great. And on that, we're going to take our second break. We're talking with Perrin Goodyear from the Salvation Army. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back. We're talking with Perrin Goodyear from the Salvation Army. And we've been getting a lot of uh, great information on what the Salvation Army does. And now I'd like to change change a little bit of perspective, if you don't mind, uh, Perrin. You know, because your, uh, your organization is in you know so many countries all around the globe, and uh, you know you mentioned 400 communities here in Canada, 
what are some of the uh, challenges you know global that uh, uh, global emergencies have? Well, what are some of the challenges that you know the 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 Salvation Army has when they're asked to to help uh, you know and, and go uh, and and participate and volunteer with with disasters? You know, what are what are some of the things that need to be considered and the things that might hinder or things that you know pose challenges for you? Um, well, you know, I mean, uh, domestically thinking, you know, uh, across the country, um, uh, some of the challenges sometimes is, uh, you know, well-meaning people who, who want to um, provide some support. Um, so, you know, I mentioned donations management. It's sometimes, um, whether it is a domestic incident or, you know, thinking back to the earthquake in Haiti, um, you know, and uh, people in Canada wanting to support Haiti so badly that, uh, you know, we would get calls in our offices saying, hey, you know, I've got some blankets that I want to donate to Haiti. Um, and, and that's where I want them to go. And so it's thinking of those challenges and trying to explain to people that, you know, there, there's challenges with that kind of thing because uh, we can, you know, they want to do it. And it might cost me, let, let's say, you know, I think we looked at it at the time, it was about $50 to send one blanket to Haiti. Wow. And I can buy a blanket into the Dominican Republic for $5, right? Wow. So it, it, it's understanding. And so it's, it, you know, one of those challenges is sometimes being able to communicate to the public. Um, you'll, you'll most of the time hear organizations like the Salvation Army and others say, you know, monetary donations are the best way to support. Um, and I think one of the challenges is that people don't understand. They, they may um, think that, you know, maybe it's that they think organizations just want the money or, you know, it's not going to go to where it's needed or whatever. Um, uh, but there's a number of reasons that we ask for financial donations. Um, first of all, we can, we can ship money a lot quicker than we can ship um, uh, actual items, right? We can purchase the items that we actually need. Um, and again, in many cases, it's much more cost-effective for us to purchase them, um, you know, closer to that area than it would be to ship them. Um, and the third reason is that we um, try whenever possible to buy items as close to the impacted area as possible, um, because the other piece that sometimes people forget about is that the local economy also um, many times takes a significant hit um, during a major disaster. So we try and purchase our items as close to that area as possible to help stimulate the local economy as well. Um, so, I mean, that's really some of the, some of the challenges that, uh, that we hear is people not understanding. The other one would be, again, well-meaning people who want to help. So something happens, um, you know, whether it's, it's the earthquake in Haiti, whether it's, um, uh, you know, hurricanes down in the, in the southern states, um, is that we get those volunteers, um, and I would say, quote-unquote, volunteers, um, people who want to help. Right. So that all of a sudden mm -hmm. they want to volunteer for us um, and you're having to turn people away and they don't understand. They say, well, we understand they need help. I'm willing to go and help. Um, in some cases, they even say, you know, well, I'll pay my own way to go. And they don't understand that we can only send pre-trained, pre-screened personnel to a disaster site. Um, we're not going to send anybody without that training, without, you know, going through the steps of understanding what our role is, um, you know, how we do what we do, understanding the incident command system. Uh, but probably more importantly, all of those self-care pieces that we talked about earlier, right? So mm -hmm. we, we won't send just anybody. So, you know, we usually try and mitigate some of that by saying, well, we can take your name, you can take the training to be able to respond the next time. So in some cases, you know, 
that can sometimes be the challenge. And, you know, a, a good example of that would be, um, you know, again, referring to the earthquake in Haiti. Um, we had those stories of people who self-deployed, if you will, um, flew to the Dominican Republic and held a sign up at the border saying that they would um, work for any organization that could take them in country. Um, you know, and well-meaning, but not understanding that they've now also have become part of the problem because now organizations have to find somewhere to house them, um, you know, feed them. They've got to find, they've got all these extra resources that are being used for somebody and somebody that we can't even use in the response because they're not a pre-trained, pre-screened person. Um, so in some cases, they're actually making the problem worse. Um, so these are sometimes the ch- some of the challenges that uh, that we deal with. Um, is so we, a, a big part of what we do is trying to educate the public on here's the best ways that you can help. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I I've known people that have wanted to go uh, you know to Haiti. You you didn't mention Haiti and uh, a couple of other people. Um, one wanted to go out to Fort McMurray. Uh, to help with the fire. So it's interesting you mentioned both of the, those examples. But they, you know, they couldn't for exactly what you said, you know, that they they would have been compounding uh, an existing problem. They would have become part of the problem rather than trying to, you know, resolve it. And they, they were Absolutely. a little... Uh, and so, they, you know, it's always that thing that you, we try and encourage people to say, here's the ways that you can help. And certainly, you know, we would welcome people then um, getting in touch and taking that training so that they can help out the next time, uh, right? So that we can go through all of those processes. But to understand, um, you know, we, we, the our volunteers, yes, they're volunteers, but they're very professional. Um, they've taken, um, in many cases, significant training and, ha- and have experience, and they take the work that they do very seriously. Um, it, you know, and so those are the people that we, we deploy. Um, you know, and again, our training program is North American, um, but we do have, you know, we're in 128 countries. Um, our international headquarters in London, England would uh, deal with any of those um, international responses sort of outside of North America. So things like Haiti, they really took the lead. And, you know, again, one of the challenges is uh, that uh, those kind of responses, um, there's a further training uh, that goes into anybody deploying outside of North America, where, you know, we teach about the sphere standards and, um, you know, through the United Nations and um, all of those kinds of things, um, which, of course, is, you know, um, h- how far apart beds need to be and, you know, certain things with uh, water and food and all of those regulations uh, to keep up those standards. But in international deployment, it, it, within North America, um, we usually ask our volunteers to be prepared to deploy for 14 days. Um, so it's one travel day, 12 working days, and then a travel day home. For international, um, normally the request is to deploy for one to three months because of the, the cost of things. So again, it's a significant commitment from people. Um, and so sometimes that's the challenge is, you know, somebody wants to go somewhere like Haiti and they say, oh, I've got a few days off work, I want to go down, and they don't realize the significant cost and, and uh, you know, the, the training component that takes place in country um, that, uh, you know, we, we don't send people just for a few days. Um, they, they are making a significant commitment of sort of one to three months away from family and friends. So before I forget, you, we're talking about the training. Is there a, a website people can go to, to if they're interested in having a look and becoming a part of, you know, the, the good work that you guys do? Absolutely. So they can go to our website in Canada. It's salvationarmy.ca. 
Um, and, uh, you know, if they're outside of Canada, they can certainly find links there for our international. Um, find the Salvation Army in their local community and start asking about it. On, at SalvationArmy.ca, um, you can actually express your interest in volunteering with us. Um, and uh, there will be links there even to more information uh, specifically about our emergency disaster services, um, what it is that we do, and, and how you can get involved. Great. So, so that's SalvationArmy.ca. So uh, go there and you can find more information. Um, I'm interested to know, because you Salvation Army has been around for a long time, what are some of the lessons learned, maybe even you yourself have learned over the years, you know, from, from doing what you do? Well, uh, you know, I, again, as an organization, we learned um, things, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about self-care and looking after our people and making sure they're looking after themselves. Um, so those are some of those lessons. Um, from my experience, and I think every organization does it, is how important communication is um, and making sure you're communicating those uh, information. It, it's such a key component, um, and it's one of the reasons, again, we operate under the infinite command system so that Everybody has a supervisor. They know who that is. We follow that chain of command. And certainly when I teach it, I always tell people, you know, you got to stay in your own sandbox. Um, you know, don't go yeah. into other people's sandbox uh, be, because that opens up challenges as well. So, um, you know, it is, uh, I think that's one of the key things is that communication thing, knowing who you need to communicate to, uh, making sure it's clear and concise um, and you're passing on the information and that important information um, because, uh, you know, disasters, um, uh, I, I've always said, you know, the first 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours of any disaster response is going to be chaotic no matter how much planning and preparation and stuff you do uh, because it was still unexpected. And so, uh, you know, during that chaos, it's important to have that calm, but make sure you're communicating that information um, because, you know, it, it Things are changing all the time. It's interesting you mentioned communication because you're, uh, you're all the uh, interviews that I've done, just about everyone at some point says communication, communication. Yet it turns always ends up being the piece that groups, communities, individuals, organizations trip over. Absolutely. And it's one of those things, you know, I hear more and more we talk about lessons learned. Um, and, uh, you know, I like the phrase that somebody said recently, that if, if we don't actually change what we do, then really, is it a lesson learned or is it a lesson observed? Um, so if we don't, if we don't look at those things, and then actually to change the way that we do things and, you know, improve our communication or do those other things, then it really isn't a lesson learned. It's more of a lesson observed, but we haven't done anything to change it. Um, so that's why it's really important to do those after action reports and, you know, look at the things that you can improve and then take those steps to make sure you're improving it. Um, you know, so from our perspective, that was things like after 9-11, understanding we needed better training for our people. So developing a training curriculum. And that curriculum is constantly being updated and revised and, you know, looked at. Um, and each time we, we teach a course, um, there is that evaluation form for those who have taken it to even give suggestions on the course um, so that we, we are constantly looking at it uh, because, of course, times change and things change over the years. So understanding and trying to be as adaptive as possible so that we are it is a lesson learned, and it's not just something that we observe and say, yep, and then we do the exact same thing the next time. And on that note, we've come to the end of another show. Perrin, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us, 
And, um, you know, a big thank you to yourself, the Salvation Army organization, and all the volunteers that work for you and help you because you've done obviously a lot of good for a lot of people around the globe. So thank you very much for everything you do. Thank you, Alex. And and certainly we, uh, you know, we couldn't do what we do without those volunteers and supporters. Our volunteers, we like to say, are the army behind the army. Um, that really allow us to do the work that we do. Um, so we can't say enough about our volunteers and, and our donors and, and those uh, stakeholders who allow us to do the work that we do. Yep, couldn't agree with you more. Um, again, everyone out there, if there's a topic you want us to talk about or someone you'd like to hear on the show, please send me a message, info at stone-road.com, and we'll get you on the show. Uh, thanks again, uh, Perrin, for joining us. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.